Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Cy Montgomery at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library. Internationally renowned naturalist, author, documentarian, and media commentator Cy Montgomery is sometimes described as part Indiana Jones, part Emily Dickinson. A distinguished career in animal behavior research has taken Montgomery to far-flung locations, including Costa Rica, the Congo, Mongolia's deserts, and many points in between. Her impressive written corpus spans 10 books for adults and another 10 geared toward children. Bestsellers include the perennial favorite, The Good Pig, in 2007, a personal memoir about her family's 750-pound pet pig, and Birdology in 2011. Her latest New York Times bestseller, The Soul of an Octopus, was shortlisted for a National Book Award. In it, she explores the psyche of this extraordinary species, including their remarkable ability to forge personal connections with humans. Montgomery makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org podcasts. And now, Cy Montgomery. Oh, thanks so much. Gosh, I already feel right at home here because I've met so many cool people, divers and drummers and animal rescuers. So um, thanks so much. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you about um, some of my good friends. Um, I'd like to start by telling you about someone who I met in March of 2011. Her name was Athena, and if she stood up, she would have stood about four feet tall, but she only weighed about 40 pounds. And she could change color and shape. She had a beak like a parrot and venom like a snake. And she could taste with all of her body and could squeeze herself through a tiny opening the size of an orange, because Athena was a giant Pacific octopus. And when I met her, I'd gone to the New England Aquarium. I'd always wanted to meet an octopus, because probably, like any of you who've seen an octopus at an aquarium, haven't you felt like here was somebody that you're looking at, but who's looking back at you? I'd had that impression, too. And I really wanted to meet one. 
So at the New England Aquarium, I asked if they could open the top of the tank and touch her. Well, when the lid came off the tank, and you must have a good lid on your octopus aquarium tank because they are escape artists, I was amazed to see that Athena immediately began to slide from her lair and came over to look at me. I saw her eyes swivel in its socket and lock onto my face. She turned bright red with emotion. And soon, I saw her arms boiling up out of the 47 degree water. And without even thinking, I plunged my hands and arms into the water as we reached for each other. And suddenly, the skin on my hands and arms were covered with dozens of her beautiful, white, soft, questing suckers. Now, I realized later that not everyone might have liked this. <laughs> because when you read about octopuses in literature, they're always the horrible monster. They're always taking down some ship. They're always portrayed as this devil fish that's going to suck the life out of you. But that wasn't what I felt at all with Athena. Now, admittedly, it was chilly because the water was 47 degrees. And she was covered with slime, but, you know, what's wrong with slime? As I point out in the book, two of mankind's most beloved and enjoyable activities would not be possible without slime. <laughs> the second one being eating. And then I also knew I'd have a problem when I went home because I knew my hands and arms would now be covered with hickeys, <laughs> at which I had to explain to my husband. But I was elated. I was elated because I felt that across a chasm of half a billion years of evolution, here I had touched the mind of a mollusk. I felt she was just as curious about me as I was about her. And I knew I was not under attack. I was under investigation. And how did I know this? Well, one, she let me touch her head. And the aquarist told me that she hadn't let anyone but her keeper touch her head before. And another miraculous thing happened, and that was she turned white beneath my touch, which is the color of a relaxed octopus. So here I was touching the mind of a mollusk. And this is a pretty amazing thing, because mollusks, as you know, don't just include the octopuses, but also creatures like snails and clams who are not typically considered particularly brainy. In fact, clams don't have anything that we recognize as a brain at all. But one of the few things that I did know about octopus the day I met Athena, because I'd done a little bit of reading, was that they're very smart animals, even though their brains are very unlike ours, so unlike ours that if you saw an octopus brain, you might not even know what it was. But the day that she reached out to touch me and taste me, 
because they can taste with all of their skin, including their eyelids. But it's most particularly developed in the suckers. That day began octopus odyssey that lasted over the three years that I was researching this book and continues to this day because I still go back to the New England Aquarium. And now there's an octopus there whose name is Sai. It's one of my greatest honors. She's got an arm span of 12 feet. And it's so great to know there's a Sai out there whose arms span 12 feet. <laughs> and it's also great to just go by the exhibit and listen to people saying, Sai is so beautiful. Sai <laughs> is so powerful. Sai is so flexible. Sai is so amazing. This is not stuff that I would hear in my everyday life if it weren't for this beautiful octopus. So, Let's talk a little about the octopus and what a different creature this is from us. I think you would have to go to outer space or science fiction to find a creature more different from a human than an octopus. We go head, body, limbs. They don't go like that. The thing that looks like the head right here, that's not their head. That's the equivalent of our torso that has inside the organs with which they breathe and digest and reproduce. Where the eyes are, that small thing there, that's the head. And of course, the limbs are in the front. And where is the mouth? Well, it's conveniently located in the armpits. <laughs> so, and at the mouth is a beak, like a parrot. And around that beak, inside, are the venom glands. They have venom like a snake or like a spider. Sometimes they have more than one kind of venom, one that dissolves flesh or one that um, causes your heart to stop, depending on the species. There's hundreds of species of octopus, and new ones are frequently being discovered. They range from these little, tiny, tiny critters to the giant Pacific, the largest that we know of, who can grow according to historical records to 300 pounds with an arm span of 30 feet. But the really big octopuses, we are told, aren't being found in today's seas because of the problems that are besetting the ocean. I set out to become friends with this alien creature. Now, one way you get to know each other is they like to taste you with their suckers. Now with Athena, you know, if a human had begun to taste me so early in our relationship, I would have become quite alarmed. <laughs> but no, Athena was knowing me in a way that no one had known me before. Because not only can they taste the surface of your skin, they can probably detect through your skin other chemicals in your blood. And who knows, they may be able to taste the neurochemicals, those like dopamine, for example, that are present when you're happy, or those like oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, the affiliative hormone, they may be able to taste these things. I once introduced an octopus to my friend Liz Thomas, a much better writer than I am, who's written incredible books. She was the first person to live with the Bushmen in Namibia. 
um, along with her family. She was part of the Marshall Expedition in the 1950s. Well, she's a very heavy smoker. And as you may know, nicotine is something that invertebrates don't like at all. And when she touched this octopus, they both withdrew right away. Liz, because she was repelled by just having a sucker latch on to you, and the octopus, probably because she didn't like the taste of nicotine. But having someone grasp onto you like this, it sounds so scary, but it's not at all. She felt to me not particularly slimy, icky, but soft, almost like you were touching a custard underneath the water. And the suction was pleasant, almost like someone was giving me a hug and a kiss at the same time. And I only got to see Athena a couple more times before I got the really upsetting news that Athena had died. Well, at this point, I had already decided I wanted to do a book. I wanted to get to know this animal. And here she died. Well, what happens is, unfortunately, even the longest-lived species don't live very long. A giant Pacific octopus hatches from an egg the size of a grain of rice, and they attain full size within three years, and within five years, they're dead of old age. So by the time you meet a giant Pacific octopus in the aquarium, that animal may already be near the end of its life because it is now a big old octopus. And that was the case with Athena. Usually, though, at the aquarium, they seem to show their old age. They behave in a way that shows that they're getting old. And the aquarium usually keeps a young octopus in waiting behind the scenes because they don't want to be an octopus with, they don't want to have no octopus in their aquarium. One aquarist once said that an aquarium without an octopus is like a plum pudding with no plums. But unfortunately, because Athena died so suddenly and without warning, they didn't have another octopus in waiting behind the scenes, and they had to quickly capture a new wild one. And as soon as I knew she was there, I rushed into the aquarium to shake hands times eight. Well, let me tell you something about Octavia, the next octopus. She, because she had been living in the wild for quite a long time, she had learned the ways of a wild octopus very well. And those ways included her ability to camouflage to a degree that Bill Murphy, the aquarist in charge of Cold Marine, had never seen before. Octopuses, as you know, can change color very rapidly. They can go from this to this to this to this in seven-tenths of a second. They not only change color, they can change shape. Take a look at these papillae, these bumps on the skin which they can erect. They can do spots, they can do stripes, they can become iridescent, they can go entirely white. They can also cause a pattern to pass over them looking like a passing cloud. They can flash. And Octavia was terrific at this. 
But because she had learned this in the wild and had spent such a good time being a wild octopus, she was also wary of people. Octopuses in the wild have a lot to worry about because just about anyone can eat them. They're a mollusk without a shell. So they have nothing protecting them except their wits. Their wits, their amazing camouflage ability, their ink, which they don't spray out like Batman might make a smoke screen. Instead, they tend to squirt it out as a blob that looks like an octopus. And that blob may have chemical properties in it, too, that may drug the predator into thinking that they don't have to follow the octopus. But these are all things that the octopus developed when it lost the ancestral shell. And in my research, I got to meet this wonderful octopus psychologist named Jennifer Mather from the Octopus Free Lethbridge University in the middle of Canada. And she was the one who pointed out that it was probably the loss of the ancestral shell that drove the octopus's intelligence. Well, Octavia had to use her intelligence not just to escape her many predators, which of course included humans, but also to outwit all kinds of prey. They're eclectic in what they eat. And they have to figure out how to capture lots of different prey items, as well as how to elude lots of different predators. So we're dealing with somebody very smart and very wary. So the first time I met her, I was disappointed that she didn't want to touch me. And when she did want to touch me, I was quite surprised that she started pulling me into the tank. <laughs> But she was interested in me. She was interested in playing with me. And this was great because the next week, in response to the article that I had written in a magazine called Orion about octopus intelligence, there was a wonderful radio show called Living on Earth. And they wanted to come out and do a segment on octopus intelligence with Octavia, the new octopus. And now I knew I had somebody who might, I hoped, interact with us. Well, she was fantastic. She totally wanted to play with us. A whole bunch of us were standing around the tank, playing with her, petting her, lost in her color changes, lost in the excitement of feeding her a fish and another fish and another fish. And then we decided, you know what? Um, let's give her another fish and see if she'll take that. Well. We went down to look where was the bucket, which we'd left on the lip of the, the, uh, the tank. And guess what? It wasn't there anymore, because she had stolen it right out from under us. <laughs> Octopuses love to play. They love to play with objects. And I wanted to show you one of the objects that the New England Aquarium created to amuse or occupy its octopuses. <coughs> Octopuses love to play with the same toys that you've probably played with as a child and that you give to your children. There's an octopus enrichment manual that's been developed to keep octopuses from being bored at aquariums. And they recommend that you give them Legos, that you give them Mr. Potato Head, 
They like to take apart Mr. Potato Head, and sometimes when they're done with him, they'll hand parts of Mr. Potato Head to their tank mates. That might be a sea star or something like that. Sea star never knows really what to do with it. But this thing, you're looking at this um, octopus cube, and the octopus cube was made out of plexiglass, and each cube had a different lock on it. And what Bill Murphy, the, the octopus keeper, would do is he'd put a live crab, octopus's favorite food, inside the cube and lock it. And sure enough, the octopus would figure out how to unlock it. Then he'd put that cube inside another cube. And the octopus would figure out that second lock, a different kind of lock. And then there was a third box, which had not one, but two different locks on it. And the other cubes would go in that, and every octopus always figured it out. But here is the cool thing. Octopus's personalities are just as distinctive as ours are. And Bill Murphy knew this in the octopuses that he had dealt with over the years. And any keeper of any octopus tank will know this. And you often can tell the personality of the octopus if you ask about the name. For example, in the Seattle Aquarium, there was one octopus who was named Emily Dickinson because she was so shy. She just hid behind the filter the whole time. They had to let her go in the sound. But then there was another one named Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> and you know who he was like. And then there was another they called Lucretia McEvil because she constantly dismantled her tank just to amuse herself. Well, Bill knew his octopuses pretty well, and Guinevere, his first octopus, was impetuous. So even though she learned to unlock the locks to the octopus enrichment cubes, one day she was in such a hurry to get to the crab that instead of unlocking the locks, she just crushed the box and created a crack about this long. And she reached her arm in, because you can just fold yourself into almost any space if you're an octopus, and took the crab out in pieces. Well, after she died, a new octopus came, and his name was Truman, and he was generally a laid-back kind of guy. But one day, Bill thought Truman deserved a special treat, and he put two crabs in the octopus enrichment cube. And the crabs, being crabby, began to fight. And then Truman just got so excited that he did not bother with the lock either, but he slid through the crack. And that's him in the octopus cube. Octopus cubed. <laughs> Octopuses love to play with stuff. And one way they play with stuff is um, they'll play with it with their extremely dexterous um, suckers. Now, here we, we see the octopuses enjoying a delicious fish. Imagine that you could taste with your fingers. When you feed an octopus next time you get a chance to, you, you might think like, oh, well, I should put the fish in the octopus's mouth, in the armpits. Well, no. For the same reason that you wouldn't jam an ice cream um, cone down your throat. They like to enjoy their food, and because they can taste with their suckers, it's better to hand them the fish so that they can slowly enjoy it, passing it from sucker to sucker to sucker to sucker along the conveyor belt of suckers towards their mouth, enjoying tasting it.
But with these same suckers, they can also untie surgical silk knots as veterinarians have discovered to their dismay when they've ever had to do an operation on an octopus, they find the, the animals can untie the surgical silk knots and it's lying on the bottom of their aquarium in the morning. So octopuses enjoy touch in a way that we can't because they're tasting it as well. And they literally wear their hearts, of which there are three, on their sleeves because they change color not just to match their background, not just to look like something else, but they also change color with emotion. And here you can see this octopus. This is Octavia, I believe. And she's starting to go white because we've been playing with her for a while and she's starting to feel relaxed. Another way they play is with their jet or siphon, which you can see facing you right here, right under the eye. And they do various different things with the siphon. They use it to jet through the sea. But they also can use it like a leaf blower to eject things that irritate them or to move stuff away from their den that they think is messy. Have, have any of you heard the octopus's garden, that wonderful? They do, some species do kind of garden in front of their dens in the wild. They'll trim away plants like you would trim your hedges. And they'll move certain things away, blowing it away like a leaf blower with this jet. And they also sometimes like lawn ornaments. They'll go out and get various tchotchkes and put it in front of their den. <laughs> sometimes, they will use a rock as a door to their den. But they also use the jet to play. And Jennifer Mather and her colleague documented this in a, in a paper, which was groundbreaking, showing an octopus using her jet to bounce a ball. Um, it would, she, would, she would take the ball and blow it into the stream of water coming out of the filter and allow the stream of water to bring the ball back wasn't really a ball, actually. It was um, a, pill, a pill bottle. But it was just like a person bouncing a ball. Well, I saw an octopus use a jet in a playful manner with my friend Danny. Now, um, Danny is the, the twin of one of my good friends at the aquarium, a volunteer there. But Danny, even though he's a twin, he has pervasive developmental disorder. And my friend Krista didn't. But he loves octopuses. And one day, she brought him in for their birthday to play with the octopus. And Danny, he really liked octopus, but he, he'd read so many scary things about them, he was kind of scared. So even though Krista was encouraging him to, to pet the octopus, Danny was a little afraid and he was shaking. And this was, again, with Octavia. And Octavia didn't seem to want to interact with him because he was shaky. But then she took matters into her own hands, and she blasted him with freezing cold salt water right in his face. <laughs> and he thought this was hilarious. And it just kind of broke the spell. And after that, they played together beautifully. And Danny made me this drawing of the day we did this together. That's me with a notebook. 
And there's um, Wilson, who's the octopus enrichment expert who invented those cubes. And there's Danny and Krista together. So what's it like to have a friend who is an octopus? Well, it's like, I think, having a friend who's an alien from another planet. In that you feel, you feel like you've touched another reality. And here's someone who cares about you. But what does caring about someone feel like to an octopus, to someone who is put together in such a different way from a person? Their brains, for example, could not be more different from ours. You know what our brain looks like? It looks like a walnut in its shell, the shell being the skull. Well, they don't have the shell, and they don't have the walnut. Our walnut has four lobes. Their brain wraps around their throat and has not four lobes, but depending on the species and how you count the lobes, between 50 and 75 lobes. Now, by far, the vast, vast, vast majority of our neurons are in our brain. Not so with the octopus. Most of their neurons are in their arms, which means that in addition to all the other powers I've been describing that sound so extraterrestrial and alien, an octopus's severed arm can go off and do stuff, <laughs> like hunt for a while. Now, of course, it's now separated from the, the mouth and the three hearts, and its blue blood is going to run out and the arm will die, at which point the octopus then grows a new one. But wow, it's almost like having eight different selves. So what does their consciousness feel like? Well, their whole lifespan is totally different from ours. And I was about to witness an extraordinary part of an octopus's life when we discovered that Octavia was laying eggs. And here you can see the eggs hanging down like strings of pearls or like clusters of grapes. We never saw her lay them, passing them through her funnel and then fastening them with glue she makes in her own body to the ceiling and walls of her lair, and braiding them together like onions. She would do this only at night, and even though I stayed there at night, never got to see this, but I would get to see her tend these eggs. And it was, it was heartbreaking in a way, because octopuses, unlike us, have their children at the end of their lives, not early in their lives. So laying these eggs signaled that the end of her life was approaching. And it also signaled something else ending was bittersweet, and that was our relationship with her. Because an octopus in the wild, once she lays eggs, she stays in that lair for the rest of her life and will never go hunting again. And for many octopus species, that means months of tending and protecting those eggs without ever eating. Now, for Octavia, 
She would accept food from us if we handed it to her on a grabber. But she stayed in her lair and never came back up to greet us again because her job was to take care of these eggs. She did not know that they were infertile. To her, these were her babies and her instincts told her that this is where she must stay till the end of her days, cleaning them, fluffing them, guarding them. Now, how do we know they were infertile? Well, because you need a male octopus to fertilize them. And I did get a chance at the Seattle Aquarium to go to the octopus blind date, which is appropriately on February 14. My husband said, go ahead, fine, go spend Valentine's Day watching some octopuses have sex. And there is, I must admit, a very steamy sex scene in this book. Um, and one day I was describing what I got to see when I saw the octopus blind date. I was describing it on a train that was going to New York and all these commuters were on. I was telling my, my girlfriend, Jody Simpson, about it. And, uh, you know, his arms were reaching for hers and, you know, he covered her with his entire body and they both changed color and then they're suckers, they're suckers. And then I realized everyone in the car was completely <laughs> quiet. <laughs> But Octavia didn't have this experience. But she didn't know her eggs were infertile. And it was very moving to me to be able to watch her tending these eggs in a steadfast way for month after month. In the wild, she would have done this for perhaps six months, and her eggs would have hatched, and she would have died. But this went on for not just six months, not just seven, Nine months passed, and she was still on these eggs. And to me, this is a testament to Bill's excellent care. But as happens with humans, one day her body just started to fall apart. I came in, and I saw she had a terribly swollen eye. And um, I told Bill what was going on. And he saw that she had this infection that she was falling to pieces. And he felt that she should be taken off exhibit and put in a more private place. Now, this was not because the public was seeing an ill octopus, because the public probably would never have known. In fact, many times I had to point out to the public that these were, in fact, eggs. But when folks found out, there was just an outpouring of affection for this, for this octopus as a mob. Um, it really changed how people saw the animal. But Bill wanted to take her behind the scenes because in the wild, the octopus would have been tight inside her lair and not had this exposed feeling of people looking in at her. But now there was a problem because he had to get an adult octopus out of her lair and away from her eggs. And he'd never done anything like this before. Well, he asked his friend and colleague, his volunteer, Darshan, if Darshan would get on his wetsuit and try and get Octavia to move into a, a bucket so she could be transferred. And Darshan said, oh man, I cannot believe how strong this ancient Octopuses, I can't get her to move at all. She just held on tighter. 
But then Bill said, look, I'm going to try to go in. Now remember, because she was wedged into her lair, she had not looked up through the water at us or touched or tasted us, any of us, for months, months and months, more than half a year, almost a full year. And yet, the minute Bill touched her and she tasted him, she recognized him and she trusted him and she let go and he was able immediately to urge her into the bucket and move her into a more private place where she could live out her days. And I wondered when I came in the next time with Wilson the following Wednesday if she would recognize me and if she'd recognize Wilson. And behind the scenes she was in, in this kind of very, very large barrel. We took the top off and we had a fish to offer her. She floated right up to the top. She reached and she got the fish from us, but she just dropped it. She didn't want to eat. And remember, she was tired and she was old and she was sick and she was very near death. But she rose to the top and looked at us in the face and reached out her arms to touch us and taste us one last time. Now, when we talk about animals like octopus having thoughts, having feelings, it still makes quite a few scientists and philosophers nervous. This is part of the reason I wanted to write this book and why I wanted to explore the idea of animal consciousness with an invertebrate animal. I often will get accused of anthropomorphism when you talk about animals like this having feelings. But that whole accusation is starting to evaporate now that we have a deeper understanding of the neurology of consciousness. My friend Jennifer Mather, the octopus psychologist I was telling you about, acknowledges that it's very easy to project onto an animal the feelings that you might be having. It's easy to do that with another human. How many of us have asked someone to, on a date who didn't want to give you the time of day or bought someone a birthday present that you knew they would love and then found it at the dump? I mean, it's so easy to make that kind of mistake. But it's a worse mistake, I think, to assume that animals do not have feelings. Because our feelings are certainly accompanied by and many would say caused by, our neurochemistry. Hormones like oxytocin we spoke about earlier, it's called the cuddle hormone and it's a hormone whose levels spike when we give birth, when we suckle our young if we're mammals, uh, when we fall in love, and when we have any kind of affiliative behavior, which is you know when you're with your friends, with those that you care about. All mammals have oxytocin, but even octopuses have a molecule so like this that it's called cephalotocin for cephalopods. 
every time anyone has gone looking for any of our neurotransmitters in an octopus, they have found them. So what Jennifer Mather says is neurotransmitters are highly conserved across taxa, which means that the chemistry of feelings, of consciousness, of thinking that enable all of this, the chemistry of consciousness can be found not just in human beings, not just in the great apes to whom we're so closely related you can get a blood transfusion from a chimp, but all the way across that chasm of half a billion years of evolution that separates us from octopuses. And it's not just me and Jennifer who believe this. In 2012, a whole bunch of neuroanatomists and neuroscientists gathered in Cambridge, England to sign a document called the Cambridge uh, Declaration on Consciousness that said that all vertebrate animals, including birds, including dogs and kangaroos and mice, all have the neural substrate necessary to generate consciousness. And so, they said, may other animals, including octopus. So what does this mean to live in a world that may be this conscious? What does it mean to have a friend like this? Well, I don't know exactly what Octavia, what Athena, the other octopuses I got to know, Kali and Karma, I don't know exactly what they felt about me. But I know what I felt for them and about them. And I know how they changed my life. They gave me a far deeper appreciation of what it means to think and to feel and to know. And they've shown me that our world is far more alive and far more feeling and far more magical than I ever before dreamed. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we return to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Cy Montgomery and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if all octopuses in aquariums are originally caught in the wild. No, but all the giant Pacific octopuses are, because only once in the history of the world has anyone ever raised a giant Pacific octopus from an egg. And um, in the wild, they're not thought to be—they're not thought to be endangered. And I, you know, I at first felt like, gosh, you know, here's this really intelligent, thinking, feeling creature. What right have we to arrest it? You know, put it in jail. But then I, I looked at what happens to most octopuses that are alive. Well, 100,000 eggs are laid. Um, let's assume they hatch. 
only two of those animals are going to survive to reproduce, and the rest of them are going to have a hideous death. They're going to be torn limb from limb while alive. Also, there's a legal fishery for these guys, and people can perfectly legally fish them and use them as bait, which they make excellent bait because you can cut off their arms and their arms will continue to wiggle and that attracts all kinds of things. It is perfectly legal to take a, a, an octopus and throw it into sizzling oil and serve it squiggling on a, on a plate. So, you know, the, the octopus that wins first prize in the octopus lottery is the one that, that gets to mate and lay eggs and see their babies hatch. But second prize is probably to be captured to live their life out in an aquarium where they are going to be an ambassador for their kind and have interesting things to do in a safe place where they won't be torn limb from limb. And I think particularly these days when our seas are under such assault, you know, by 2050 there's supposed to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. You know, and global warming is ruining the oceans. And we need ambassadors like this to reach out and enchant people with the sea, to, to turn them into warriors that will protect it. And under those circumstances, I feel an octopus can have a really good life and, and do good for octopus kind. So, I mean, I'm really glad you asked that question because you and I were thinking exactly the same thing. This question is whether Cy Montgomery believes the story of Inky the octopus, who escaped from an aquarium in New Zealand by squeezing through a drain pipe. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, do, do you all know this story? This is a fabulous story. Okay, Inky was caught in a lobsterman's lobster pot by mistake um, off um, Auckland, I think it was, in New Zealand. And when he realized, oh my gosh, I've got an octopus in here, he went to the he was he went to the aquarium and says, here I've got this octopus. Can you can you take this octopus off my, my hands before he dies? And uh, they did. And this was not a giant Pacific octopus. It was a different it was a different species. I think it was Insularis or something. Anyway, Inky was a very popular octopus at the aquarium, and like most octopuses. They like to explore. Well, someone left the lid ajar one day, and Inky got out. And um, they get out a lot. They, they love to get out of their tank. In fact, they will get out of the water in the, in the wild. They'll crawl, out of, um, they'll crawl out of tide pools and stuff. And there's video that you can see of some of them walking around on land, and they can do it for a while because they're covered with that nice slime. Anyway. So Inky got out and found his way to a drain. Well, because the aquarium is right on the ocean and they had mainly native animals, they used seawater in their tanks. And the seawater, when it slopped onto the floor, went into the sea. And Inky went down the drain, which went into the sea and probably went home. And I, I got a lot of phone calls after that happened because, I, I don't know, people thought I was some kind of octopus expert just because I'd written this book. And they were like, wasn't he, you know, trying to escape because he didn't like being confined? And 
I think he escaped because he was curious. I mean, the astronauts aren't going in outer space because they don't like the Earth. You know, they, that doesn't mean he was dissatisfied. It meant that he just wanted to explore. So, I mean, we can't really say if he was actually dissatisfied. Um, but interestingly, New Zealand has a number of octopuses that have um, very interesting jobs. One of them has been taught, well, or figured out insightfully how to do this, if you put your arm into this tube and touch this red uh, knob, it'll take pictures of aquarium goers. <laughs> so the octopus takes photographs of the people who visit, and then they sell the photos, which funds the octopus tank. And another octopus, at least one octopus, I think this is in the Hatfield Aquarium in Oregon, um, they've rigged up this thing that the octopus can pull on these levers with its arms, and the levers ab above the water are connected with tubes of paint, and the octopus creates art, which then they sell. <laughs> so octopuses are doing all kinds of weird things to keep themselves occupied. Another audience member asks why Montgomery uses the word octopuses instead of octopi. I love the word octopi, too. It's such a bummer, but you can still say apple pie. Um, the reason is... <laughs> because um, the, the, the octopus experts will, will taser you. <laughs> um, they get very upset because they say, you know, octopus is a Greek word, and I as a plural ending is a Latin ending. And so they're very purist about this. But I won't taser you. And I, I always thought octopi sounded really cool, and I have a number of friends who still say octopi. This fan has been very interested in octopuses after reading Montgomery's book. She wonders if many aquariums offer programs or experiences to interact with these creatures. Yes, actually. Um, a number of aquariums will let you do a behind-the-scenes tour. And um, I, I'm pretty, I mean, we certainly do at New England Aquarium. Um, I betcha that you could call up your local aquarium and ask if you could do it. Because these days, you know, used to be you weren't supposed to touch the octopus because, you know, the octopus wouldn't like it or the octopus is going to bite you or, you know, everybody was. But, but now, you know, it appears that octopuses like to play and they like to play with us. So, you know, they have to be a little careful. Um, the good thing about a giant Pacific octopus, you don't want to be bitten by them because they do have venom. And then there's like a big legal problem if you like keel over. So you don't want to try this with one of the more venomous species. Um, and a lot of octopuses will have the smaller, more venomous, colorful uh, blue, you know, the blue ring octopus. Have you ever seen that guy? He lives in Australia. He's a beautiful octopus, but he's extremely venomous. And there doesn't appear to be any antidote to the venom. The uh, small red octopus, um, that's a beautiful octopus. And I've actually kind of held one, but um, he's so small that you're always, if you're touching him, you're very near the beak and very near the venom. Um, but with a, a giant Pacific octopus, their arms are so long that, you know, you can stay away from the, from the beak and the venom, and so it's not so dangerous. I mean, particularly if you're a member of the aquarium, you know, there's often levels of membership and sometimes different levels of membership, you know, if you're a big donor, um, or if, if you're a teacher and you're bringing a class, or um, I, I do know Bill has had a number of kids, make-a-wish type kids. There, there's a program that gives kids who are sick um, a special 
behind the scenes tour. And I've, I've taken people with different disabilities and stuff in to meet the octopus too, so I bet you could. I bet you could. This audience member notes that Montgomery interacts with many kinds of animals, both on land and in the sea. Does Montgomery connect with different species in different ways? That's a really good question, because I did wonder, you know, what would the connection feel like with an octopus? Would you be able to, f would you be able to feel if the animal was angry or if the animal was um, going to be aggressive or if the animal was frightened? Would I be able to feel it? And um, I mean, I know this sounds kind of woo-woo, and there's some scientists that, but, but you do. I mean, y you, you do. And it's part of our survival ability, you know. It, we, we can sense it with, with other people. And sometimes you make a mistake. You know, sometimes, obviously, you make a mistake because that's how people get hurt by other people. But I did feel like with these <coughs> octopuses, I could, I could tell. And I was never afraid. I mean, even when... A couple of times I was grabbed by octopuses that, that were pulling on me, but I was never, I was never afraid. I had an incident with an, an elephant. Um, could have been really scary because she was pulling me with her trunk into her mouth. She was lying on her side and I was giving her a bath. She was in a stream. and um, Having an elephant pull you, I felt her lips close around my leg. And um, normally that would be something that would make a person very concerned. But, because they're so strong and they're so big. But I wasn't really afraid and I could feel it and it was fine. And I had the same experience with a really big Burmese python, wild Burmese python. And uh, you can kind of tell. This question is what Project Montgomery is working on next. I'm working on a bunch of stuff at once. I just finished a book for younger readers. I, I founded this series with Nick Bishop called Scientists in the Field. And um, the summer, I went to Africa twice. And the first one was with Kay Holkamp, um, who has one of the longest running studies of any animal anywhere. And it was hyenas. And I got to have a live hyena in my lap, <laughs> which was great. So that that. I'd, I've actually written that book, but I haven't done the editing on it yet. Um, I'm writing a memoir for young adults called How to Be a Good Creature, which, I'm, which is what all these animals I've known have taught me. And um, it's like a memoir in 12 animals. Um, and I, uh, I went back to Africa a second time um, this summer to join the wildebeest migration with a friend of mine, Dick Estes, who's 88 years old, and he's the world's top expert on wildebeest. I've been friends with him for 30 years, and I've been wanting to see this migration with him for 30 years. And, you know, I just did not want to wait one more minute, and I'm doing a book on that. An audience member marks that Montgomery has been on some very cool adventures. What are a few more that top her bucket list? Well, one, like, like you, I would love to go to the Galapagos, diving in the Galapagos. Um, I would like to go to Antarctica. I'm glad I waited, though, because I have bad frostbite, and I want to ha have gear that is going to be warm enough. Um, gosh, there's many places I want to revisit. I want to go to Madagascar before that's entirely gone. I want to dive with, I mean, whale sharks. Um, I mean, there's just so... There's so much. I, I really, I, 
I want to take my vitamins and live a long time. <laughs> this next question is if there are any other animals named after Cy Montgomery. There's someone out there named Cy with a bigger nose than mine. <laughs> um, there is a goat named after me in Massachusetts. Uh, that's, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's it for the moment. But I'm, I'm, so, I'm so honored. That's so great. And you know, in the, in the flap of that book, I hate, I hate my picture. So Nick Bishop, my collaborating photographer, and I, we both had uh, um, tapers um, named after us. And the way she names them, she names them not just your first name, but your first and last name. So instead of pictures of our heads, we had pictures in the back of you know, Cy Montgomery, the tapir, and Nick Bishop, the tapir. <laughs> she thought kids would like it. And she's very glamorous. The last question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring about when Montgomery's passion for animals took root. I think I just appeared this way, you know. I mean, I think most kids, though, are attracted to animals naturally. I mean, children's dreams are mostly about animals. And Considering that until very recently we were hunter-gatherers whose lives depended on observing the natural world, I, I think we kind of arrive on the planet with an affinity for connections to all these other souls and recognizing them as individuals too. But I think it gets hammered out of us. And I think a lot of us, you know, it's so easy in this Western world to, you know, by the lie that what matters is money and cars and looks and all that other stuff that, that seduces people. But none of that stuff ever had any appeal for me. I just always wanted to be part of this, this sweet, green, breathing world and, and know those other souls. My closest friends were always other species. I married a human, though. And so, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are humans, but I have, I have a, a lot of friends who are something else too, and that makes me feel really at home on the planet. Boy, well, thank you all so much. Gosh, I really enjoyed tonight. That wraps up our Washington County R.H. Stafford Library event with Cy Montgomery. Make sure to catch our last Club Book podcast of the season with R.T. Ryback, who spoke at Dakota County's Galaxy Library on Monday, November 14th. Minneapolis native R.T. Ryback served as mayor of Minnesota's largest city from 2002 to 2014. His recent memoir, Pothole Confidential, is equal parts political coming-of-age story and behind-the-scenes look at the running of a major American city. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoyed these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season.
That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>